On the Table, Current and Critical Information for Massage Therapists in Practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada. Hello, everyone. Today, our subject is engaging in conversation, setting expectations, and the role of empathy. While much communication during the massage session is nonverbal, we also require a framework for engaging patients as to their care needs regarding pressure applied and other variables that create the comprehensive massage therapy experience. How do we know what our patient wants? What if a patient finds difficulty in describing their experience, perhaps due to a history of trauma? What if an RMT is uncomfortable with the level of pressure they are asked to exert? In the latter part of this interview, we explore a related subject, the role of empathy in the therapeutic relationship. Are massage therapists properly equipped in their training and informed by evidence to respond appropriately to patient effect, particularly in advanced care situations? Today, we are joined by educator and practitioner Pam Fitch for practical advice in addressing these tough situations. My co-host today is Don Dillon. Don is a massage therapist, practice coach, and author of Charting Skills for Massage Therapists and On Practice from Entry Level to Establish Massage Therapist. Welcome, Don. Hello, Janin. It's great to be back in the co-host chair with you. And, um, and of course, we're very excited. So we love Pam Fitch. This is the third time we've had her on the show, and we're glad to have her back. Let's introduce her to the audience. Canadian massage therapy educator, writer, researcher, and longtime practitioner Pam Fitch has explored professional challenges faced by manual therapists for more than 30 years. Her writing is often focused on issues related to trauma. Author of Talking Body, Listening Hands, Pam explores communication, the power of dynamics associated with manual therapy. Pam, welcome back. Thanks, Don. It's a pleasure to be here. So Pam, we're going to kick things off here about um, setting expectations and strategies to best learn what patients need from their massage therapist. So here I'm going to read you an account of a patient experience relayed by a massage therapist, and I'd welcome your thoughts to this. So this is what was sent in. And I quote, it took me decades to find a massage therapist that would get the knots out. I was in agony from the knots. I went to other therapists. It was useless and a waste of money. One RMT was massaging body areas without pain, explaining they had to massage the whole body before they could work on my knots. She never did get one out. Finally, I found an RMT who was proficient. Why couldn't other therapists relieve the knots when they are trained? I've continued with my current RMT every week for almost two years, and they're wonderful. I would have missed a lot more shifts at work if it had not been for their experience, expertise, and compassion. I'm left feeling some contempt towards RMTs in general. Why couldn't they help me in spite of their training? Pam, how would you respond to the patient in this situation? Uh, I have encountered a number of people who express similar kinds of things. And I always suggest that, you know, every profession has people who work really, really well and others who don't work quite so well. That said, I don't think as a profession we've done as good a job as we could have to encourage massage therapists to pay attention to what clients are actually asking for. So, so they um, learn how to massage the shoulder or assess the knee or 
maybe they've been told by a teacher that they have to massage the whole body before they work on a specific area. I've heard all those things before, but what's missing, and this is, this is the hobby horse I keep riding off in all directions on, what they're missing is the fact that we treat human beings, not conditions. We treat people who are in pain and people's lives are messy. And even though we're not psychotherapists, we need to be sure that what we're offering is fitting with what that person's bringing into the treatment room. So it is a personal frustration when I hear those things, but good that there are some wonderful therapists out there. <laughs> I have two thoughts on the subject. One is that we have been taught in the healthcare system that there's, a, there's an authority level and that we should trust the practitioner, the expertise of the practitioner, and we shouldn't question anything. So I'm wondering, on one hand, do massage therapists really encourage active feedback from the uh, client or patient on the table? And the second aspect, I wonder if, if there may be even some apprehension by the therapist in terms of esteem. I don't know if I want the patient if, if they tell me that they're not happy with the treatment, maybe that's going to affect my esteem in some way. So I wonder if those two variables also contribute to this fairly common problem. And I've, I've heard it too many times on the table where a therapist just didn't, just didn't ask, just didn't inquire and make sure that the patient was comfortable, that their expectations were being met. Do, do you think those two variables play in as well? Oh, for sure. Um, until the new standards come out and they haven't officially uh, become our standards in Ontario, I must say, we're talking across Canada, but in Ontario, we're about to receive some new uh, standards of practice. One of them is called function in a client-centered manner. Great. We never had that before. We had indications and descriptions about how to uh, drape a client, uh, how to apply effleurage or petrissage. I can be sure that no complaints have ever come in about massage therapists regarding their effleurage. Hasn't happened. Uh, however, there have been numerous complaints where uh, the members of the public, the clients, have indicated to our colleges that massage therapists aren't listening. They don't ask questions. They don't investigate. And that's a lack of critical thinking um, skills on the part of the massage therapy, um, either student or therapist, practicing therapist. So then that falls back on the education programs for massage therapy, where we're obviously not doing enough to train our budding massage therapists to recognize the importance of that skill once you're in talking to somebody. I, I think it's a complex problem and it's hard to give an easy answer to, to, that, answer, to that question. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's talk more practically then. How can uh, practitioners be sure that they are comprehending what the patient wants by way of pressure and other variables that are within our control to administer? Well, I think I've... I've um, I've said on, on the podcast a couple of times that communication is essential. And there are really, really simple ways that you can verify whether or not you have the right impression. 
one term for that kind of communication skill is clarifying. So what I hear you saying is X, am I right? Or is there some other reason for you saying whatever you've said? That, that's an example of how we clarify. But in order to clarify, you have to pay attention to indicators. You have to see with your eye and sense with your mind when somebody pulls back as you ask a question or wince when they're talking about a particular kind of pain so that you can, you can use those tells. If we were all playing poker, they'd be called tells, right? I'd be, I'd be showing you my hand. Well, in massage therapy, our clients show us every single day what's going on with them. We just have to pay attention. And so what I call it is using observation as a form of assessment. That's critical for knowing whether or not we're on the right track. Somebody's holding their breath or they're guarding or they're pulling back or their hands are clenched or their knuckles are white. I'm doing something wrong, right? We, that, we need to pay attention to those uh, indicators. So Pam, um, on the other side of things, what if an RMT is uncomfortable or even incapable with the level of pressure they're asked to apply? So how might the RMT bridge this discussion with their patient? Because I mean, there could be some instances where you're like, if I apply more pressure, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt you. Or hurt themselves. Exactly. Fundamentally, the long-term consequences of deep, deep, deep pressure on your joints means you end up with arthritis and pain in your hands. Um, again, it's a, it's a degree of nuance that sometimes comes to massage therapists down the road when they realize that more specific pressure as opposed to deeper pressure has the same effect. For the client, it's satisfying, but for the therapist, it's much, much less harmful to their, to their bodies. Um, so again, it comes back to how are we trained? If the person who is teaching is indicating that massage therapy students need to apply pressure, static contact, deep, deep, deep static contact. I'm wondering what the thought process is around that because I'm not sure that there's even evidence to support it. However, as human beings, we have this response to pain where we just want somebody to press in that one spot. If you could just put your fingers on that spot, I'll feel better. That's true that based on, you know, empirically from all those massages I've given and Dawn, you've given over the years, it's true. If we hold our fingers on a spot where people are, are experiencing a lot of pain, you know, the pain goes away. But then we have to think about why is that pain there in the first place? Where's it deriving? What, where's it coming from? And are there some other structures that may be, um, high toned and completely silent. If I address those, then the other pain may go away. It comes back to the critical thinking of the issue. Mm. What I'm concerned about is that massage therapists practice what they've been taught without really being aware and present to the client and to their skills. They're not putting those two things together. That's a big opinion. And I know there's many therapists who do things extremely well. But when I get the kinds of complaints that you just uh, 
you just read, Jen, and that's that's what I think is going on. They're just applying what they've been told, pushing pushing here, prodding there, without really considering the context for the client's function, their life, their whatever issues are going on for them that may be causing those pains. Thanks, Pam. And I, I um, as a practitioner myself, I find that I, I think there's there's two parts to, to this idea. One is, can the therapists learn how to leverage their body weight better, the better use of biomechanics, use of specialized equipment like a like a high low table, uh, mm-hmm. electric table to be able to administer. But there's also the perspective on what the patient is perceiving, why they feel the pressure is enough. And and I want to ask you about this. What what happens if the patient has difficulty discerning their own sensibilities in terms of pressure applied or the temperature of the hydrotherapy, other qualities of the experience in the massage therapy treatment center uh, session? if they've had a history of trauma or habitually have suppressed their own needs, how do we ensure that we're clearly reading them when they're expressing that, you know, you could, you could go heavier, you, we could use more pressure here. How do, we, how do we make sure we're properly reading them? Well, uh, it comes down to having a knowledge of trauma-informed care. What could we possibly provide for our clients? If somebody has no awareness of sensation, if I'm pushing on their body and they don't, they can't even feel me there, that's actually a red flag for um, a sense of disconnection from a part of their body. Maybe circumstances have happened in the past which have caused them to have a lot of pain and now they can't feel it at all because that's the human response to pain. If you can't do anything about it, wall it off and let's pretend it's not even there. That's a very common response to trauma. Um, I once had a, a, a client see me and she had had a car accident. Well, she had no connection psychologically uh, with her her left arm and um, she showed me a drawing that she had made of her body one time. And there was actually this big um, space between her left arm and her body. Well, no surprise when I would touch her shoulder, she she would kind of not remain present because I was, it was like I was putting my hand in the wound without really having any awareness of where I was going. I was stepping in the mud. Um, so I think that the that uh, massage therapists need to be extremely careful and aware of the the puddles in people's lives. As I said, trauma can make things really messy. Uh, we all have stories in our lives. We're not immune, and uh, touch becomes this mediator. It's like the it's like the the flashlight that shines on our lives. So if we receive touch in areas where we've been uh, hurt, harmed, traumatized, or feel disconnected because of some terrible consequence, um, it will have an effect on the individual, on the client. And so then it becomes important for the therapist to really pay attention to what they're seeing so that they can either back out of the puddle, get out of it, get on dry land where the client is going to be safe or 
check in with the client to see if the client is comfortable and prepared for that kind of sensation. That takes some discernment. That takes a, a lot of awareness. Um, I think it's kind of advanced level care because certainly our entry to practice uh, training doesn't prepare us for that kind of awareness. Thank you, Pam. In your article, The Role of Empathy in Trauma-Informed Massage Therapy, which was published in Massage Therapy Today, their spring 2021 edition, you state trauma removes the individual's ability to make choices. What exactly do you mean by that? Um, One of the things that's uh, noted in across the literature, uh, psychotherapy, psychology, uh, neuroscience, is that when trauma occurs, people literally have choice taken away. In other words, something happens to themselves, their being mentally, emotionally, psychologically, sexually, physically, in some way, shape or form, where they have no uh, say in what happens. And that sense of agency, do I have power over myself, ripped away. So when that happens, people can become quite uh, vulnerable to traumatic responses to circumstances. And the more times something happens, which triggers the traumatic response, the more sensitive they are and the more likely they are to respond in a traumatic way. Our job is not to recreate trauma. Our job is to make sure that a client is safe at all times. And if I'm touching a part of somebody's body, which relates to their traumatic experience, then I have a responsibility to check in with them. Is that really what they want me to do? And if not, we need to give them choice to say, no, don't don't touch my right shoulder. I can't stand it. Right. And then we need to adapt our treatments so that that sensitization to the trauma means that the implication for massage therapy in in clinical care is that we need to pay attention to zones of trauma, which are uh, very sensitive and make sure that we don't touch them until the person is prepared to make that choice. So Pam, same article, you assert significant power differential exists between practitioner and patient. You quote Howard Bath saying, unacknowledged power imbalances promote silence. What are your best practices for setting treatment goals for trauma-informed care? Oh, it's such an important question, Don. I mean, the, the, the most essential thing is to provide choice under all circumstances. And, and as a best practice, that's what I do with everybody. You know, I started my um, career working with people who had significant history of trauma. And eventually over the course of a few years, I realized that actually those best practices, the things that worked really well with that population, that's what I should be doing with everybody. So fundamentally it, become, it becomes an issue of client-centered care, client-centered questioning, offering choices, checking in with people while they're on the table to make sure that what I'm doing is still comfortable. Um, uh, uh, just a, a small anecdote, I, I recall whew, numerous times, okay, I've been a massage therapist for a long, 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 long time. I've had many, 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 many massages. 
And I'm still, when I'm the massage client, hesitant to speak up and say, could you not do that? Or this is really not working for me. I, I don't know why. I can't do it. I know better. I teach this, but I can't do it myself. So I think there's nothing more instructive for me than that, ex that personal experience. And I need to have my students and, and practitioners that I'm teaching, I need them to understand that when a client's on the table, they, the power differential is enormous. The client is lying there with no clothes, usually face down. The therapist is standing with clothes on right there. You have an incredible power imbalance that is reminiscent of infancy. Let's not go to childhood. It's way back there, right? When we're pre-verbal and we can't say, and we just hope that the caregiver, mom or dad, or whoever's taking care of us will figure out what it is we need. And we do so by crying or breathing or holding our breath or whatever as infants. And our caregivers figure it out, hopefully. And if they don't, we learn that people don't figure it out. So as massage clients, we're vulnerable. There, there's enormous power imbalance between the massage therapist and the client. And when I quoted uh, Bath as saying it promotes silence, it's just that Clients would rather not say they don't want to in, don't want to offend us as therapists. Maybe cognitively they don't want to offend us, but I imagine if you drill down a bit, they just don't know how to speak up. So Pam, you cite the Federation of Massage Therapy Regulatory Authorities of Canada (FOMTRAC) um, interjurisdictional entry to practice competencies initially featured display positive regard, establish rapport and respond with empathy. Mm -hmm. When the College of Massage Therapists of Ontario, the CMTO, developed their 15 career span competencies, they effectively dropped these in favor of the more ambiguous, apply the principles of sensitive practice. Why is the switch problematic from your point of view? Oh boy, this is a big question. <laughs> It was a mouthful for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me just summarize a little bit. Um, we have had entry to practice competencies um, since 2016 that were agreed upon in all the regulated jurisdictions across the country. And even the unregulated jurisdictions have adopted these entry to practice competencies as the basis of what massage therapists need to be able to do in order to be in practice. So those things need to be in place. Um, what happened in Ontario was Ontario decided to create uh, career span competencies. So they took the entry to practice competencies and they said, okay, what does this mean over the course of like for me, 34 years, right? Uh, so they want us to act with professional integrity. That doesn't matter whether I'm entry to practice or whether I've been in practice for 30 years, working with professional integrity is a fundamental competency that I need to demonstrate. I need to be able to communicate effectively, all of those things. So what they did was they created one called function in a client-centered manner. And this means that RMTs ensure that clients and client well-being are at the center of the decisions they make. 
Our MTs give each client their complete attention, allow sufficient time to fully address their needs. They respect client uniqueness, take into account their views. They involve clients in the decision-making. I, listen, I have no problem with these competencies. They're, they're quite wonderful. But the one I'm concerned about is the one that says, apply the principles of sensitive practice, which includes managing power differentials, recognizing and addressing transference and countertransference, applying all modalities with a therapeutic intent, effectively addressing accidental or incidental physical contact, <gasps> appropriately respond to a client's emotional reaction before, during, and after a treatment, obtaining written consent prior to assessment or treatment of sensitive areas, and that we be aware of what constitutes sexual abuse. Okay, wait a minute. That is the equivalent of an entire course of study right there. Mm -hmm. And it's in one career span competency, in addition to maintain comprehensive records, treat others respectfully, all these things. What concerns me is that in order for a, a, a massage therapist to understand how to respond to a client who is exhibiting signs of transference, they have to know what transference is, they have to know how to communicate sensitively and compassionately to a client. If a client's offering themselves to the therapist, they need to refuse, but with dignity. Um, we need to have some awareness of where the behavior is coming from before we can respond in an appropriate way. And so what I was concerned about is that in no place anywhere in these competencies do you see the word empathy. That's been dropped. You have it at entry to practice, but now it's not used in the career span competencies. Now, it may be that someone said, well, we can't measure this. It's possible. That may be the reason. But I think it's a gap because there is a lot of uh, research in measuring empathy and there are all kinds of definitions for empathy, which are really, really important to our profession. So I am quite concerned about that particular one. It's like a laundry list of things, but they're the biggest, most complex situations that, that occur for massage therapists. So a little concerned about that career span competency. Yeah, it seems underweighted, doesn't it? Given the complexity, it seems underweighted. I would agree, Don. And and it's the reality is, if someone meets, if a therapist meets a client in a spa one time, they don't ever see that individual again. It's possible to treat them with respect, to provide a an interaction therapeutically that's appropriate and the person walks away and says yeah i feel better yeah great but if you establish a therapeutic relationship with a client over the course of years and they have multiple complex conditions if they're coming to see you every week or two weeks as many people do they're depending on their massage therapist for emotional support whether or not that's acknowledged by the college. We know what our scope of practice is and our scope of practice is requiring us to relate to pain and function in a, in a physical way, but people are messy and their pain is associated 
with their psychosocial realities in their life. So uh, I don't think you can separate those things. So I am a little concerned about this competency. You know, I'm, if I could add some personal reflections here, I, I guess I've been aware of it, but the way you've, you've said it has just uh, evoked a, a bit of an epiphany for me. I mean, I, I think that what you described in the transactional nature of the one-time visits, a uh, mm-hmm. practitioner can certainly demonstrate a certain level of competency and meet expectations. But I'm thinking of some of the patients I've seen for uh, 20 to 30 years. I've seen them for over 200 yeah. visits. The depth and breadth of the relationship that we have is clearly not transactional. Then yeah. I would need competencies to help guide me as that relationship becomes uh, deeper and of course more complex because as the individual perhaps ages or yeah. has significant events in their life, same same individual, yeah. but I would need a, a another level of competency in order to be able to engage them if they've had a, a death of a loved one. That would just yeah. change the whole dynamic. Even though it's the same person I'm working on, the dynamic has changed and I would need an expanded level of competencies for that. Well, exactly. And imagine that you've had this intense therapeutic relationship with a client who's had multiple complex conditions and trauma, whatever else is going on, then their partner dies. You go to the funeral? It's a big question. Mm -hmm. Do you go to the funeral? Really? Is it professional to go to the funeral? Or is it unprofessional to go to the funeral because you want to maintain that confidentiality of the relationship. Well, whether you go or not, doesn't matter. Do you think about it? Have you thought through the implications of going to that funeral? Yeah. Uh, those are the kinds of uh, implications of decision-making that, that happen well weekly, you know, when you're in practice, you, these things happen and it's hard to communicate to people who've either never had massage or never worked as a massage therapist, how incredibly intimate the work is. But when you meet somebody in the grocery store and they're suddenly telling you about uh, their bladder prolapse, because that's something that you've been talking about in treatment. And now you're in a public space. It's like, how do you contain that conversation and get away from the individual because that conversation needs to happen, needs to be bracketed and happen in the treatment room. There's so many situations like this that, that occur. And what I, I really want therapists to understand is that we become like transitional objects for our clients. We're like teddy bears for them in many ways. And if they see their teddy bear in the grocery store, they just want to hug the teddy bear and they want to hug us. And they, you know, navigating hugs is another whole conversation, right? Oh my God. There's so many things that where we have context for someone's history, we understand that they've never been touched positively in their life. And then they come in for a massage and then they fall in love with us. We need to manage those feelings but with kindness and compassion. And I don't want to say thou shalt not to a client. I want to explain to them why I can't go for coffee with them. 
and and that requires some degree of empathy. So back to your question, I think we need to know have more information about empathy. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Pam. You certainly have evoked some new thoughts for me today, and um, I, I suspect we'll be inviting you back a fourth time. <laughs> Now, you, you did mention um, in a previous answer about advanced care. So let's, let's go okay. into that a little bit. Now, I understand many health disciplines have advanced care guidelines for situations made complex by higher likelihood of patient affect and distress. So, for example, uh, end of life, pregnancy, psychiatric conditions, uh, people suffering grief and loss, gender and ethnocultural discrimination and the cultural destruction and trauma suffered by Indigenous people. You assert our profession lacks sufficient research and guidelines normally provided by the profession's regulators to help RMTs work competently with patients requiring advanced or complex care. Please say more. Well, uh, it's true that many other professions will create advanced care practice guidelines for complex circumstances to help the individual practitioners navigate their professional obligations versus the complexity of a circumstance that the client is experiencing. If you're in hospital, it's pretty straightforward. If you're in hospital and you're needing primary care, there's a bunch of people working around you. But if you're in an individual kind of environment, like we see people, it's isolated, the door is closed, it's one-on-one, And that's where people tell us about the messiness in their lives. So we have never had a more stark reminder of the lack of advanced care practice guidelines than in the past month, as we have learned about the um, unmarked graves in Kamloops and in Saskatchewan. So Indigenous people have experienced profound cultural trauma, and some would call it cultural genocide, a term that is is fraught with um, high opinion and high emotion, but probably not far from the truth. When you have that kind of cultural issue, and you have a massage therapist who is not informed about the cultural issue, it is so possible to harm people further, to unwittingly make the traumatic situation worse by touching in ways without offering choice, without being committed to to trauma-informed care. In addition to that, if someone is facing a palliative diagnosis, I have heard stories about massage therapists who provide their opinions about medically medical assistance in dying when that's really, really not within our scope of practice. And if a client asks whether or not they should go through with it, a therapist might suggest yes or no. Oh my God, right? So technically you could say that's not part of the scope of practice. Somebody's working outside their scope, but in reality, We need help as massage therapists to navigate those very complex situations so that we can appreciate how difficult it is for the client in that moment. And I would love for our massage therapy profession to have advanced care practice guidelines for a bunch of different things because we need it. And we're probably one of the few professions who don't offer it. 
Oh, you're making me emotional there, Pam. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you also explain in this article um, that we do not understand the full relationship between empathy and massage therapy. So we've kind of brought this up prior. You state our profession continues to focus research and education on the physiological, pathological, and functional aspects of activities of daily living. Many RMTs pay little attention to the psychological developments in neuroscience that might inform our working alliances with patients. So what are you asking massage therapists to consider here? And what would you like directors of research and education resources to do differently? It's true that we do a pretty good job better than we used to on researching the effects of massage therapy on specific conditions or impairments. Uh, we do a pretty good job of synthesizing assessments, uh, usually taken from chiropractic and physiotherapy literature, certainly manual therapy literature. But what we don't do, we don't touch it because it's almost like a hot stove don't touch it, is we don't look at the psychological literature. And I can tell you that uh, I have had former clients, in fact, uh, have a situation happening because of COVID. I have a former client from many years ago, many years ago, who reached out to me because she used to talk with me. She had, no, she had a psychotherapist, she had a psychiatrist, she was on medication, she had some mental health issues. And now she's feeling suicidal and I am the person she reached out to. That is important for me to recognize that my role as massage therapist never goes away. That's what the psychological literature would suggest. I know that she's vulnerable for, I won't get into the, the specifics about that individual, but my job in this moment with this individual is to figure out what is my responsibility. I recognize the complexities of her situation because I remember my treatments with her. She's not engaging me as a massage therapist. She's reaching out because she felt like I listened to her. So I, I feel a, a great responsibility to make sure that I respond professionally and appropriately, but also compassionately and with empathy, recognizing how complex and profoundly isolated she feels in this circumstance. Uh, that's the kind of thing that we can encounter as massage therapists and our profession needs to prepare us for those situations. They are some of the hardest to navigate. Yeah. And I, yet I got a lot of experience and I'm paying very close attention to my responsibilities here. Yeah, recognizing that sometimes the massage therapist is the, a person's safe person, a safe space to. Exactly. And trauma informed care would suggest that if we're creating zones of safety, then we're also recognizing the responsibility that we have to be those safe people for individuals. And that is quite a big responsibility. I think it would be really important for us to uh, actively train our massage therapy students when they're in uh, their programs, uh, connect the dots for them about the different, different kinds of empathy. So for example, 
when I'm perspective taking, when I'm paying attention to a client's needs, because I recognize the context and I'm aware and I'm responding with compassion, that's called cognitive empathy. But if I am drowning in what they're telling me and feeling overwhelmed, I may make very poor choices professionally, which is exactly what our colleges don't want us to do. They want to protect the, the, the client, members of the public. So we need to do a much better job of teaching about those things. And we could also be measuring empathy in prospective candidates. We could do some quality assurance training on the importance of perspective taking so that people who are practicing recognize that it's not just thou shalt not do these things which are going to get you in trouble with the regulatory body, but actually engage people in critical thinking. So the research could be broad, it could be deep, but I think it needs to be around the psychological uh, implications of our work. Now, you did start off our conversation today saying that we treat human beings, and you, you and I have had some private conversations about our concern that our field may be focusing overly on the functional or phys physical aspects of care and forgetting the fact that we're treating human beings and those aspects of empathy and psychology need to be considered in treating the whole person. Back in the day, Don, when you and I were students, there was a real emphasis on the spirituality of our work. That was very common. And we got quite a reputation um, for the woo-woo, weird, uh, out there kind of crystal gazing types of uh, new age thinking. And then I think the pendulum swung far, 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 far to the other side, to the physical, to the... Uh, physiological. And I hope that we get the pendulum back in the middle because somehow there's got to be a middle ground where we can acknowledge the human being as well as the condition or the impairment. I think, I think for some of us, we're guilty of looking at physiotherapy and what they've done as a pathway to higher credibility and positioning in healthcare. And we figure we should just follow that same path. Mm -hmm. We should mimic it. But of course, massage therapy has a very different context than physiotherapy. There are some common elements, yeah. but there are some different elements. And I, and I really appreciate your presentation today because I think you're asking us to, to work on those non-physical elements that are equally as important in providing care for the whole human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Pam. I mean, I always learn so much from you, and I know our listeners will learn a lot from this conversation. Um, there's a lot more questions to be asked, of course. Um, again, I'm sure we'll see you again or hear from you again soon. Um, so thank you, Pam, for um, joining us today. Um, thank you, Don, as well, for joining me as my co-host. Thank you, Jen. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, I just encourage all of our listeners to share this content on uh, any social media platforms. Uh, you can tag us, Massage Therapy Canada. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. On the Table, current and critical information for massage therapists in practice, a podcast presented by Massage Therapy Canada. Thank you.